All right, well, good morning, church. Uh, Listen, if you're new here today, my name is Will Franco, and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at High Point Church. And if you're new here and you're tuning in for the first time, we are so glad that you are tuning in this morning. Now, this morning, we are in the third installment of our series through the book of Psalms entitled Psalms, a mixtape for our lives a mixtape for our lives. And our passage this morning uh, comes to us from Psalm 46, Psalm 46. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. If you have your devices, go ahead and turn there. Um, If you don't have either, it will be here on the screen as I read it. Psalm 46, and I'm going to read it um, in its entirety. Here's what it says. God is our refuge and strength. Everyone say refuge and strength. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble, tremble at its swelling, Selah. Now, I want to pause there real quick because Selah, uh, commentators and scholars have different perspectives on what Selah means, but Selah can mean one of two things. It's either a reflective pause. So the psalmist is literally saying, pause here and reflect on what I just told you in these first three verses. It can mean either a reflective pause, a praise break, or it can mean a crescendo. So it could also mean that the song that he's writing is building. So every time you see Selah, the song continues to build. So either way, that's what the word there, Selah, means. Now, verse four says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the most high. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. That's the word of the Lord. Now, the title for my sermon this morning is this. Know God and be still. Let's go ahead and say that together. Ready? Know God and be still. Still. Now, if you're paying attention, one of the things that you should realize right here at the beginning is I want you to notice that I have changed the order. There is a different order to my title and when you compare it to the passage. In the passage, it says, be still and know that I am God. But my title is know God and be still. Now, now why am I doing that? Am I doing that to be cute? Am I doing that to be creative? Am I doing that to be memorable? memorable? No, actually, I'm not doing that for any of those reasons. The reason why why my title is slightly different from the passage is because I would argue that Psalm 46 verse 10 is actually one of the most misquoted and misused verses in all of the book of Psalms in general and all of the Old Testament in particular. 
People love themselves some Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. Just like the verse we saw last week, verse one of Psalm 42, where it says, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you, right? Just like they misquote that one, I would say that this one is even more misquoted and and more misused. And here's why. Because if you see the passage, there's a reason why I read it in its entirety here at the beginning. If you look at the passage, that verse doesn't actually show up until verse 10. The the whole be still and know that I am God verse that everybody puts on cards and mugs and frames, that, that be still and know that I am God verse, it doesn't show up until verse 10. In other words, there are nine verses that the psalmist gives us, nine verses that the psalmist writes before we ever get to verse 10. In other words, in order to understand verse 10, you first have to understand verses one through nine. I believe that the reason why this verse is taken out of context is because we don't give ourselves context. When, when you take it out of context and you don't have context, then you start acting like this verse is a standalone verse. You don't really understand who you are responding to. This God that you are being called to know is not actually the God of Psalm 46, it's the God of your imagination. And I would argue that the reason why a lot of believers and even non-believers, if you've ever seen this verse, the reason why a lot of people aren't experiencing uh, the be still part is because they haven't done the no God part. And since they haven't actually read and understood the entire context of Psalm 46, the God that they know in their head is a different version of God. It is not the God of Psalm 46. So let me put it to you like this. I would argue that to the degree that you uh, uh, experience, right, God and know God, to that same degree, oh, let me put this, to the degree that we embrace God, the God of Psalm 46, to that same degree we will experience stillness. To, to the degree that we embrace his Godness, to that same degree we will experience his stillness, Okay? And so the reason why I flip it and the reason why no God comes first is because the the God that we are to be still in front of is the God that is described to us in verses one through nine. And I personally can't think of a better season for us to wrestle with a passage like this than the season that we find ourselves in. And and, and here's why. Because in this season, what, what many of us are experiencing is we have been forced into, uh, and essentially we are forced into stillness because of this quarantine. But the stillness that many of us are experiencing is a circumstantial stillness, not a contemplative stillness, okay? This quarantine has forced us into stillness, but instead of it being a, a contemplative stillness, which is what the psalmist is calling us to, it's a circumstantial stillness. And so my hope and my prayer this morning is as we walk through this psalm that your circumstantial stillness will become a contemplative stillness, that you will be still because you know God. The only way we will experience this stillness is if we know who God is. So in order to be still, there are three truths that we need to know about God. There are three truths that this passage teaches us about the person and nature and character of God. And as we get to know these characteristics of God, as we get to know these truths, 
then and only then will we experience the peace that the psalmist says we should be experiencing. So there's three things that we need to know about God in order to be still. We need to know God's protection. We need to know God's power. And we need to know God's peace. So let's begin this morning by looking at God's protection. I'm going to reread for you verses one through three. Look what it says at the beginning of the psalm again, verses one through three. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, everyone say therefore. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. So, so what we see here in verses one through three is we see God's protection. Well, how do I know that? Well, the first word that I want to highlight for you is the word refuge, the word refuge. Now, here's what the word refuge there means in the Hebrew. It says that God is our refuge. And the word there, refuge in Hebrew, it literally means a safe place. It, it, it literally means a shelter, a place that you go to whenever you feel endangered or threatened. That's what the word there, refuge, means. The passage says that God, in order to feel the stillness that we all so desperately want, God has to be our refuge. But, but here's the thing about a season like this, this quarantine season that we find ourselves in. What I have seen is that this season hasn't necessarily changed anybody, but it has done a very good job at exposing everybody, right? This quarantine season, if I'm being honest, hasn't really changed me that much, but it's definitely exposed me, right? And I think that's what seasons like this do. They don't change us. They could change us. There's a possibility that we can change, but we are always exposed by them. And I would say that this season has probably showed you where your actual refuge is. You might think that God is your refuge. But what this quarantine has probably revealed to you is that something other than God is your refuge. Now, for those of you who are new to the Bible and don't really know the Old Testament that well, the Old Testament is about a group of people called the Israelites. And the Israelites were, were a group of people that God chose and, and literally made a covenant with and started a relationship with. And all throughout Israel, the Israel's history, there was moments where enemies would show up at their door. There was moments where they would find themselves in the battlefield with another enemy. And one of the things that's so disappointing about the Israelites is that every time, almost every time an enemy showed up, instead of turning to God as their refuge, what they would almost do, almost every time, is they would turn to another king. They would turn to a pagan empire. They would, instead of looking up, they would look around and try to look for another king that can help them instead of God. And what I would argue is that in this season, many of us are more like the Israelites than we think. Many of us in this season, in, in times of difficulty and in times of suffering, we turn to our actual refuge. And many times the refuge that we turn to is not God, but something infinitely smaller. So for some of you, your refuge, your safe place uh, might be pornography or it might be alcohol or it might be drugs or it might be some sort of medication or it might be video games or it might be social media, right? Or it might be another person, your spouse or your kids. 
I would argue that, that many of us are turning to every, every person here, whether you are a, a follower of God or not, whether you believe in Jesus or not, every person here turns to a refuge in times like this. The question is, which refuge are you, are, are you turning to? And I would say that in our day, the, the refuge that we are all probably most tempted to turn to, maybe not all of us, but many of us, is money. Money is a huge refuge for many of us. When, when we feel like the earth is giving away, when we feel like the waters are roaring, when we feel like the mountains are trembling, instead of turning to our prayer closet, we turn to our bank account. And many of us, what we do, you, you, you might be guilty of this. I know that I do this as well. We can go, we, we almost can check our bank account on a daily basis. We can check our retirement on a daily basis. And, and not because we think it's changed, but because every time we check our account, there's this peace that comes over us because what we're doing, you might not even realize that you're doing this. When you look at your retirement, when you look at your bank account to find uh, safety, to have, to have it be your refuge, what you are doing is you are finding your refuge in a dead president instead of a living God. So what we see is that God is our refuge. The other thing that I want you to see here that I think is really important is that not only is God our refuge, but the passage says that he is a very present help in trouble. And the word there, help, in Hebrew is actually the same Hebrew word that's used to describe Eve back in the book of Genesis. She, she is Adam's helper. But the word there, help, says that God is our helper. He is our help. The word that help, it doesn't mean that he's your butler or that he's your genie or your personal assistant or your life coach. No, the word there, help, it actually means that he is, a, he is your military reinforcement. He is your military assistance. It's the, the, the word picture there is that you are in a battle. Things are getting really, really heated in the battle and you have no idea where you're going to go. And then all of a sudden, military reinforcements show up. All of a sudden, military assistance show up. And, and what the passage says is that God is our military reinforcement. He is our military assistance, Okay. And then he, it doesn't say that he's just our help. In the Hebrew there, it's in the English, it says that he is a very present help. That, that phrase there in the Hebrew, what it means, that, that phrase very present, it means that he is accessible to you right now. That's what very present means. He, he's right here, right now to help you. So I don't know if you look at your, I want you to look at your clock or I want you to look at your phone. I want you to look at a clock somewhere on your wall. Whatever time it is right now, let's say it's 1048, right? Whatever time it is right now, what this passage is saying is that God can help you right now on Sunday morning at 1048. God can meet you exactly where you are right now. A very present help. The other thing that that phrase means, it means the implication is that God is not only is he here right now, but it also means that he is readily available. In the book of Jeremiah, there's a promise that God makes. He says, if you will seek me, you will find me. And then the other thing that I love is that it also means that God is enough. That phrase that he is very present, it means that he is enough. It means that he is sufficient. And the other day I was listening to this pastor give an interview and he said, one of the things that we do in, in moments of transition or in moments of suffering, he said that the more, uh, one of the things that we, we tend to do as Americans is we're very self-sufficient. He says that we tend to turn to God in moments where our sufficiency is taken away. When we feel insufficient is when we are most tempted to turn to God. 
And what I love about this is that if God is a very present help, and actually he says that the reason why he's written books on parenting and marriage is because when you, when you get married, there's this feeling of like insufficiency. You realize, well, I can't do this by myself. And he says in those moments, people will turn to God. Same thing happens when you have a kid. And a lot of times people come to church when they have kids. And it's the reason why is because you're, 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 that myth, that mirage of self-sufficiency that you've been believing gets stripped away. And then all of a sudden, God's, God becomes an option for you. And the same thing is true of moments of suffering. I love that God is a very present help, that he is enough and that he is sufficient in the areas where we are not. What I want you to see too is that in verses two and three, essentially what is being described there is an earthquake. When, when you hear what the psalmist is describing, he is describing a very bad earthquake where the waters are roaring and foaming and the mountains are trembling and swelling. And, and, and what, what he's talking about is a really bad earthquake. Now, now think about this. It's actually a quote that I came across this week or a couple weeks ago that I had never thought of. There was this missionary and he was being interviewed. And here's what he said in the interview. He, he was talking about how when he was in Asia, he was a missionary in Asia, there was this really bad uh, earthquake that came in and every the buildings fell and the building that he was in was trembling. And he said it was a very, very frightening and scary moment. He felt very insecure in that moment, obviously, when it had been a big earthquake comes through. He said that, that what this season of the quarantine reminds him a lot about how that city felt after that earthquake. And here's why. He said, when a major earthquake comes in and everything shakes and everything trembles and things fall, he said, after the earthquake is over, not only are you afraid of another potential earthquake, he said, but all of a sudden you are afraid of things that used to make you feel safe. He said, so for example, when you go out into the street and you see buildings crumble, then not only are you afraid of a potential earthquake, but you are afraid of the buildings that used to make you feel safe. So the school building and the government building and the gym, right? All these places that would that seem like safe places now no longer felt safe because of the earthquake. He says that after an earthquake, not only are you afraid of the earthquake, but you are afraid of the very things that used to make you feel safe. He says that's the same thing that's happening with this quarantine, that with the quarantine, not only are we afraid of the coronavirus itself, but the coronavirus, because of how it is spread, it has forced us to be afraid and feel unsafe in the very places that used to make us feel safe. So for example, church is no longer a safe place because the coronavirus can spread. The government building you go to, the library that you go to, the school that your kids go to, the gym that you work out at, all these places that used to be safe places because of the coronavirus no longer feel like safe places. But that's what moments of suffering and challenge do to us. They, they force us to reevaluate what our actual refuges, refuges are and the only refuge that is safe all the time, the only refuge that will not crumble and that will not be shaken is God. Elizabeth Elliot, who's this very famous Christian writer, um, and she uh, was married to this, guy, this missionary named Jim Elliot. And, and Jim Elliot went to Ecuador to be a missionary and was martyred for his faith. It became a really famous story. She, she married Jim Elliot and then Jim Elliot died. He was martyred. And then she remarried. And then years later, her second husband died from cancer. After her second husband died from cancer, she reflecting on Psalm 46, here's what Elizabeth Elliot had to say. She said, everything that has seemed most dependable has given way. Mountains are falling. Earth is reeling. In such a time, it is a profound comfort to know 
that although all things seem to be shaken, one thing is not. God is not shaken. Man, praise be to God for that. Praise be to God that he will not be shaken. Listen, if you look at verses one through three, you can tell that creation will constantly change. Creation is constantly changing. And in many ways, it is constantly getting worse. Old, new things become old and new things depreciate. Creation is constantly changing. But praise be to God that our creator is consistent and he is constant. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God doesn't change. God doesn't have to get better. God doesn't have to improve. God doesn't depreciate. God doesn't need a software update. God is God no matter the season. I better get an amen for that too. So the first thing we see is God's protection. The first thing that we need to know, the first thing that we need to be convinced of in order to experience the stillness that this psalmist is talking about is we have to know God's protection. The second thing we need to know about God is God's power, God's power. Look what it says um, in verse, I'm gonna actually read it here from the screen, uh, verses four through nine. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the most high. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth, how he makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear and burns the chariots with fire. So the second thing that we see here in this passage, the second thing that we need to know in order to be still is we need to know God's power. Now, I want you to see the, the difference between verses one and three and verses four through nine. In verses one and three, um, what we discover is that there is a natural disaster on earth. There's a natural disaster, right? Verses one and three. And then all of a sudden in verses four through nine, there's a shift. It goes from being a natural disaster on earth to being an international disturbance. From natural disaster to international disturbance, there's all this chaos happening on earth. But what's fascinating is that if you look at verse four, God, God's city, God's kingdom is radically different from man's kingdom. Man's kingdom is in chaos. Man's kingdom is, is in an uproar and is all this noise and all this, uh, uh, it's, it's, all, it's very boisterous, right? But God's kingdom is peaceful. So, so, so what I love about when you compare man's kingdom in verses one uh, through six, roughly, to God's kingdom in, in verse four is that you, you see the, 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 just the difference. Man's kingdom is in an uproar and God's kingdom is completely calm. Uh, man's kingdom is very loud and boisterous and God's kingdom is silent and peaceful. You see the two differences between man's kingdom and God's kingdom. And I would say that the biggest difference between the two kingdoms is God's power. Because in the passage it says that God will be the one is, is in that city. God is the one that will defend that city. So it's God's power that brings this peace and this tranquility. 
Now, one of the things that I want to give you some context on that you may not know is that back in this day, when this psalm was written, so we're talking about almost 3,000 years ago, the Israelites, the people that I brought up earlier, they would find themselves in battles regularly with other foreign nations. Now, you would think that most of those battles took place on a battlefield. But actually, most of those battles took place not on a battlefield, two armies going up against each other, but it was a foreign army showing up at the city wall of Jerusalem and threatening to kill them, okay? Now, here's the thing that you need to know that you might not know. When a foreign army would show up to a city that it was trying to overtake or overthrow, right, or besiege, what they would do is they, instead of just attacking the city, what they would actually do is they would just camp out around it and they would just wait. And what what they would do is they knew that eventually the people in the city would run out of food. Eventually the people in the city would, would run out of water. And so they would just wait them out. Now here's what I found out that I actually didn't know. In those days, the cities that were most prepared for a potential siege were the cities that had a water source flowing through them, whether it was a river or some sort of stream. Why? Because as long as there was water flowing in, that city can hunker down, you know, bunker down a lot longer because there was nothing that the enemy can do. The enemy couldn't wait them out or they would, they would try to wait them out, but because there was a water source flowing through, they would have to wait a lot longer, okay? So the reason why I say all that is because what, sky, what scholars say and what historians say is that Psalm 46 is actually describing to us a, an actual story that happened in the Old Testament. Back in the Old Testament, there was this famous battle that took place in 2 Chronicles. And and that battle is the battle that this psalmist is writing a song about. It's it's the battle that this psalmist is, 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 is praying a prayer about, okay? So here's what's happening. In 2 Chronicles chapter 32, the Israelites, uh, uh, Jerusalem, is being led by a king named Hezekiah. Now, what was unique about Hezekiah is that Hezekiah was one of the few kings that were good and righteous in God's eyes. He was a good king from beginning to end, right? So Hezekiah was leading Jerusalem. He was the king of Jerusalem at the time. And then all of a sudden, in 2 Chronicles 32, we discover that this foreign army, the Assyrian army, shows up at their doorstep. They show up at the city gate. Now, the Assyrian army was led by a guy named Zennacherib. And Zennacherib was this evil, just just savage dude, savage. The, The Assyrians, I would say, and maybe people disagree, I would say that the Assyrians are one of, if not the most bloody and most violent people that have ever existed. And here's why. They were known for a few things. The first thing that the Assyrians were known for is that they were known for their power. They were a world power at this time. But the other thing that they were known for is that they were known for literally just slicing people's skin off their bodies. They would kill people and they would just skin them. And the other thing that the the Syrians were known for is that they were known for impaling people. So they would get to a city and then they would take the people, the strong, the, 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 the head of the armies and the royalty. And they would, they would literally build this big contraption and they would be a, a, a stick, a wooden stick that was sharpened as sharp as they can make it. And then they would throw these bodies on these sticks and the, the, the sticks would, these, these, these poles would impale these people. They created that. the Assyrians were the ones that came up with the idea of impaling people. Another thing that, that people usually get wrong is that they say that it's the Romans who came up with crucifixion. No, the Romans, they might have 
perfected crucifixion, but the people who came up with crucifixion were the Assyrians. They were bad boys. These guys were savages, okay? So they show up at the gate of Jerusalem. And think about how cold-blooded this dude was. Zennacherib doesn't even talk. He, he sends his, his Hebrew translator. And his translator, he stands up and calmly, not, not yelling, not screaming, he tells the people on the wall, the soldiers on the wall, in Hebrew, he says, make sure that you don't listen to your king Hezekiah. Make sure that you just give up. Make sure that you just drop your weapons and, and just give in. Because if you don't, we are going to kill all of you. So give in now and everything will be fine. Or if you don't, you will die. And they literally, this translator through Zennacherib, he literally taunts them. He says, this God of yours isn't going to help you. He isn't going to save you. We've been there, done that with other nations. This God is not going to deliver you. And so the people are hearing this man speak in their native tongue, telling them, give up or you will die. So Hezekiah goes into the presence of the Lord. He's nervous. He's afraid just like anybody else would. He prays. He's encouraged by God. He is reminded of who God is. Then he goes out to the people. And in verse six, uh, Hezekiah says this. Then Hezekiah encouraged them by saying, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria or his mighty army. Now, just stop there for a second. This mighty army, it wasn't 10,000 people. It wasn't 50,000 people. Commentators say and historians say that he probably brought close to 200,000 soldiers. So this mighty army, 200,000 soldiers are standing outside the gates. And that's what Hezekiah says to them. Now look what he says in the next verse. On the second half of verse seven, he says, for there is a power far greater on our side. He may have a great army, but they are merely men. That's good. That'll preach, man. I don't got time to preach that, but that'll preach. We have the Lord, our God, to help us and to fight our battles for us. Hezekiah's words greatly encouraged the people. So, 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 so Hezekiah, he encourages people, but, but God hasn't delivered them yet. He, he's trying to encourage them, but God hasn't done anything yet. He, he's, he's, he's trusting in God, but God hasn't showed up yet. And so he just leaves it there. That, that night they go to bed. That night they go to bed. And what we are told in second Chronicles 32 is that as they were sleeping in the darkness at night, the angel of the Lord came through the Assyrian army And one angel, one angel, and the angel of the Lord, for those of you who don't know, the angel of the Lord, according to scholars, is is essentially a a, a preview of Jesus. It's Jesus showing up in the Old Testament, okay? So so, so the the angel of the Lord, at night, he shows up, and the angel of the Lord says, kills, literally slays 185,000 Assyrians by himself. One angel takes out 185,000 Assyrians. So Zennacherib wakes up the next morning. He sees the carnage. He doesn't know what happened. He gets up and him and his army go back home. And then he eventually gets killed by one of his sons. But what's crazy, guys, I want you to see that in this, against insurmountable odds, 
God shows up. Now, I know that story might not mean anything to you, but to me and to my people, the Jews, uh, it's, it's a big story in our history. And you're like, what do you mean, my people? I thought you were Hispanic and black. Well, you might not know this, but this past summer, I took a 23andMe test, and I am 1% Jewish. So this story might not mean anything to you, okay? But to me and my people, this is a big story. So I know you, you Gentiles don't appreciate history, but it's a big story for me. I'm not, I'm not Jew, I'm Jew-ish, right? So, so anyways, uh, uh, let me not get distracted. So, so God shows up and does this incredible miracle. He shows up and gives them an incredible victory, but what's so beautiful about the victory is that they do nothing to get it. They do absolutely nothing to win it. One angel. Imagine if God would have sent all of the angels. One angel took out 185,000 men. So, so listen, I, I don't know what enemy is at your doorstep. I don't know what enemy is at your city gate. I don't know if it's a financial enemy. Maybe there's a, a money situation that you find yourself in. Maybe it's a physical issue. Maybe you're sick or someone that you love is sick or it's the fear of getting sick, right? Or, or maybe it's a relational one. Maybe you feel isolated. You feel lonely. Or maybe it's a spiritual one. You're dealing with guilt and shame and condemnation. Listen, I don't know what enemy is at your doorstep. I have no idea what enemy is at your gate. But what I can tell you is that if God was able to show up in 2 Chronicles 32 against a much stronger enemy, I can guarantee you that the same God who delivered Hezekiah can deliver you as well. We all face different enemies, but praise be to God that there's only one solution. So, first thing we see, and the first thing we need to know is we need to know God's protection. The second thing we need to know is we need to know God's power. And then the third and final thing that we need to know about God in order to be still is we need to know God's peace. Look what it says in verses 10 through 11 of the passage. It says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, now go back to verse 10 for me for a second. See, see, what I need you to see, and here's the thing that I love, is that finally we arrive at verse 10. You see what I'm saying for it? You see what I'm saying? That there's a crescendo. There's been two sailors already. There's a crescendo, and finally we arrive at verse 10. But you don't really appreciate verse 10 unless you first understand verses 1 through 9. We finally get to verse 10, and then he says to be still and to know that he is God. Now, I want to unpack some words here for you because I don't think we fully appreciate what's happening here in verse 10. The first thing that I need you to see about verse 10 is the word know. The word know in, in Hebrew, here's what it means. It means to know something intimately. It means to have an understanding of something. But what I love about that idea of understanding is that it means to have an understanding that can only come from personal experience and personally seeing happen. So he's not just talking about this, this objective cold knowledge of God. No, he's talking about an understanding that comes from experiencing who this God is, an understanding that comes from seeing what this God can do. So, so get this, the, the reason why we know now and the reason why we can actually understand him is because now we are looking at God through the lens of the entire Psalm. And so now the God that I know is the same God who protects me, is the same God that is powerful and is the same God that brings me peace. 
See, that's the type of God that once you know will give you peace and will help you to be still. And speaking of the word still, the other word that I want to highlight for you, this is probably my favorite word in all the passage. Be still. Here's what that, that phrase there in Hebrew means. It literally means to let go of something. It literally means to release. It, it, it literally means to throw in the towel or to surrender. In some, in some translations, what it says, instead of still, it says cease striving and know that he is God. But, but the best image that I came across, the word there, be still, it literally means, this is the image, it means to, if you have your hands up, it means to put your hands at your side. That's what it means. To be still means put your hands at your side. Now, here's why I love that, right? Because this whole psalm has been about war and about battles, right? But think about it. When, whenever you're in a battle, whenever you're in a physical fight, your hands are doing one of two things. Either you are a fighter and your hands are up ready to fight, or you're not so much a fighter. Maybe you want to defend yourself so you're like this, okay? In a fight, there's one of two people. And some of you are fighters. You've been fighters your whole life. And some of you maybe like, I'm not a fighter. So me, I would probably be more like this. I'm not a fighter. I'm going to just go ahead and say it up here. Uh, you should have asked me before you hired me, but I'm not a fighter, okay? Anyways, so there's two, essentially two things you can do with your hands in the fight. You either have your hands up, ready to fight, or you have your hands over your face, protecting yourself, okay? What's beautiful about this idea is that even in the midst of the worst battle imaginable, even in the worst chaos, even in the hardest seasons, God's saying, I don't want you like this fighting, and I don't want you like this protecting. I want you to put your hands at your side. That's what the word be still means. Isn't that beautiful? That because of who God is, we can be still. Now, 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 now get this, get this. In the passage, essentially what, what Psalm 46 is, especially since it's based on 2 Chronicles 32, what, what scholars say is that essentially what Psalm 46 is, is Psalm 46 is, a, is an announcement of victory. It is a victory announcement, telling people, hey, since God won back then, he will win again today. Psalm 46 in its entirety is a victory Announcement. And here's what you might not know. Back in those days, whenever there was a battle, let's say there was a battle out on the field. Many times the people who were left in the city had no idea who was winning. They didn't have TV. They didn't have uh, social media to get updates on what was happening out on the battlefield. The only way they would discover what had happened was when a messenger showed up and would tell them either A, we won, or B, we lost. And depending on what message he communicated, it would determine their response, right? So, so when, when we see that Psalm 46 is a victory announcement, the, the word picture that you need to have is literally there's a battle going on and the psalmist is riding back to the city and he is informing us that God has won the battle. Essentially, it is a victory announcement. Now, when you go into the New Testament, there's a Greek word for that. And the Greek word for that is evangelion. Evangelion. It literally means good news that is declared unto a group of people. So, so Psalm 46 is a, is a version of an evangelion. It is a good news. It is a victory announcement being declared to a group of people informing them that God has won. But here's what I need you to know this morning. Here's what I need you to understand this morning. If these people in the Old Testament had something to celebrate, if these people in the 
the Old Testament had a victory to announce, then I would argue that us today, we today have a much greater knowledge of God. We have a much greater work to behold. We have a much greater victory to announce and to live in light of. And because we have it, I would argue that this greater evangelion, this greater good news that we have been given should result in a greater peace and in a greater stillness. This entire psalm, this entire victory announcement, this this good news announcement points us to another announcement. It points us to greater news. And and in this psalm, there are two threads that tether us to the greater news. Essentially, there are two arrows that point us to the greater victory. There's two, and I want to unpack each one. The first thread that I need you to see is I want to quickly go back to 2 Chronicles. Not necessarily to read it, but remember, this psalm is describing to us 2 Chronicles 32. And then you have Hezekiah, and you have the Israelites, and you have the Assyrians, and you have Zennacherib, right? And, but, but what's interesting is that in Psalm, in 2 Chronicles 32, even though God shows up, and even though the Israelites win, the only thing we see there is a temporary victory. It was a great victory, but it was only a temporary victory. And the reason why we know that it was only a temporary victory is because a few chapters later, there was another enemy, there was another battle. And what we are told is that eventually the city of Jerusalem was ransacked. Eventually the city of Jerusalem was, over, was overturned and it was overthrown and it was besieged. That's what we find out later on. So even though the second Chronicles 32 is a wonderful story of victory, it is only a temporary victory because a little bit later, another enemy and another battle resulted in them losing. But here is the good news. Here's why we can have a completely different perspective when we think about God's victory because 700 years later, 2 Chronicles 32, 700 years later, there would be another battle. And get this, the other battle, this this other battle, this greater battle took place in the same exact location. It took place in the same exact hills outside of Jerusalem. It took place right outside the same city wall. But here's what's fascinating about this battle that was going to happen 700 years later. This battle wasn't going to be a battle between man and man. It wasn't even going to be a battle between God and man. No, no. It was going to be a battle between God and the evil forces of the universe. And here's what's fascinating about this battle that was going to happen 700 years later in the same place, in the same hills, outside of the same walls. In this other battle, the angel of the Lord was also there. But think about it. In the first battle, 2 Chronicles 32, the angel of the Lord shows up and he slays evil men for their sins. In the next battle, 700 years later, the angel of the Lord was there again, Jesus Christ. But this time, instead of slaying evil men for their sins, he was being slayed by evil men for their sins. In the same hills, in the same location, outside the same city wall, there was a greater battle that took place between Jesus and Satan and sin and death. And praise be to God that Jesus Christ came to deal with our real enemies. Listen, your greatest enemy is not the coronavirus. Your greatest enemy is not the economy. Your greatest enemy is not some politician. Your greatest enemies were Satan, sin, and death. And at the cross, Jesus Christ took all those enemies out. 
Listen, at the cross, Jesus Christ experienced a temporary loss so that we might experience an eternal victory. It says in the passage that he will come and when he shows up, he will make all wars cease. He will make all wars cease. And when you see that, that word make all wars cease, it almost seems as if he's going to politely ask the wars to stop. Hey, hey, wars, can, can you settle down? Can, can we stop fighting here? No, no, no. In the Hebrew, that, that phrase makes all wars cease. The, the mental picture is of, uh, of, of, of a conqueror showing up and defeating an enemy so thoroughly that he literally disarms them so they have no weapons left. That's what it means when it says he will make all wars cease. He will show up and he will disarm the enemy so that the enemy has nothing else to give. And then Paul, later on, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, he, he talks to us about this victory that Jesus came to bring. Here's what he says. Here's how Jesus made all wars cease. This is beautiful. Colossians 2, 14, here's what he says. He, Jesus, canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And then look at this. In this way, everybody say in this way. In this way, he, Jesus, disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Come on, church. Jesus came to give us ultimate victory over the ultimate enemy. One of the things that we said back during our Christmas series is that people always talk about how the war to end all wars was World War I. No, no, no. The world to the world to end all wars was World War II. No, 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 no. The war to end all wars was Jesus versus Satan, sin, and death. And guess what? He won. Jesus won. He says in the passage that when he shows up, he will break the bow. He will shatter the spear. He will burn the chariots. So now you and I, we have the opportunity. Now you and I, we have the option, an option that we didn't have before. Now when we place our faith in him and we are protected and we are victors, we are more than conquerors, we can lower our weapons. We can throw off our shields. We can come out of our fortress because Jesus Christ won. Listen, the only thing stronger than God's military power is his saving power. Come on, church. Come on. Jesus is the greater Hezekiah who came to bring a greater victory. Here's what you don't know. And in, Revelation, in the passage, it talks about how there's a river that flows through the city of God. But here's the problem with that part in Psalm 46. That if you look at Jerusalem, the city of God is Jerusalem. The problem is when you look at Jerusalem today, there is no river that flows through Jerusalem. So, so what river can the psalmist be talking about? Well, the psalmist, without even realizing it, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was looking forward to Revelation 22. All the way at the end of the Bible in Revelation 22, we discover that there is a river that will flow through the city of God. But here's what I love about that river in Revelation. The river that he describes there in, in, in the passage, in verse 4, I think, of Psalm 46, the river that he describes, there are two words in Hebrew for the word river. 
One word is a river that literally fills up and then dries out depending on the season. That's one word for river in Hebrew. The other word for Hebrew, uh, for river in Hebrew is a perennial river that never dries up. A perennial river that continues to flow regardless of the season, regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the enemy. That is the Hebrew word that the psalmist uses to describe the river that will flow through God's city at the end. And what I love about that is that in, in, in Revelation 22, what we discover in the first two verses is that this river doesn't just flow through God's city. It's a river. It literally flows, it says, from the throne of grace. See, one of the reasons why we can be at peace is because the throne of grace is occupied. One of the reasons why you don't have to be the fourth member of the Trinity is because the throne of grace is occupied. One of the reasons why you can put down your plastic 399 Walmart scepter is because the throne of grace is occupied. One of the reasons why you can throw away your paper Burger King crown is because the throne of grace is occupied. And in that passage, it says that the water of the river flows from the throne of grace because Jesus Christ is the living water and it flows from, not to the throne, but from the throne. And the other thing I want you to see about this river that, that really blew my mind, it says that this river flows out of Jerusalem out into, you know, what surrounds Jerusalem. But here's what's fascinating. Currently today, Jerusalem is on a mountain. It's on Mount Moriah. So if there was a river that flowed out of Jerusalem, it would all go down into the valleys that surround Jerusalem. The the river would have nowhere to go. But what's beautiful is that what we find out in Zechariah, back in Zechariah, Zechariah prophesies about the coming Messiah. And one day when Jesus shows up to bring final victory, it says in Zechariah that he is going to land on Mount Olives, the Mount of Olives, which is directly across from Jerusalem, and that the Mount of Olives is going to split in two from east to west. So now all of a sudden, the river has somewhere to go because when Jesus comes back to declare his final victory over his enemies, he will crack Mount Olives, the Mount of Olives open, and that is where the river will flow. Come on, church. And the last thing I want to to share is this. There's one more thread that I want you to see that I think is really important for us to be aware of. And that just reminds us again that the victory is ultimate and that Jesus has won. See, and with the first thread, we looked forward. With this second thread, I want to look backward. See, the language that is used in Psalm 46 is actually used, very similar language in Hebrew, is used in another place in Scripture. In Exodus chapter 14, the the, the Israelites who were in captivity in Egypt are leaving Egypt. And as they are leaving, they get to a place where they're stuck. The Egyptian army is behind them and there's water right in front of them. They're they're stuck. There's, There's the Red Sea on one side. There's the Egyptian army on the other. And they're sitting there and they are terrified and they are scared and they're complaining and they're doubting. And Moses goes up to the people. And in verse 13 of Exodus 14, Moses says, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. Says the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Then he says, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And guess what? 
that phrase there, be still in Hebrew, is the same exact Hebrew phrase that we see in Psalm 46, verse 10. He says, be still. Why? Because the Lord will fight for you. So these people don't miss this. They find themselves in a much harder circumstance than the one we find ourselves in. They are facing a much greater enemy than the one we are facing. But it says, if you look at Exodus 14 at another part, it says that at the break of dawn, right at the morning, right as the sun was raising, God showed up and he was, he split open the, the waters and it was right at the break of dawn that the water killed the Egyptians. But why do I bring that up? Because in Psalm 46, he talks about how in the morning, when the morning dawns, God will fight for you. Why does God wait to show up in the morning? Why does he leave us in the darkness for like he did in Exodus 14? Why does he leave us in the darkness how he, how he even did in 2 Chronicles? The, the enemies were already out there. What's beautiful about God is that in the darkness, God is working on your behalf. And what I need you to know is that the reason why whatever darkness you find yourself in, the reason why you can have hope, and the reason why you know that that darkness is not a punishment is because the only person who was ever punished in the darkness was Jesus. See, when Jesus first showed up as a baby, it says that night became day. The angels of the Lord, a host of angels, which means army. An army of angels came and sang a song of peace. It was nighttime, and all of a sudden the shepherds looked up and it was almost daytime. So when Jesus was born, night became day. But when Jesus died, day became night. And Jesus, in his moment of darkness, he was being punished. He was taking on all the wrath of God. So here's what this means. I don't know why you are in a season of darkness. I have no idea why but I can tell you why you're not in a season of darkness. It's not because God's bringing his wrath on you. It's not because God is punishing you because God already took out all his wrath on Jesus Christ at the cross. That's why it says in Psalm 30 that there is weeping through the night, but there will be joy in the evening. Guys, as you think about that, as you meditate on that, Man, that, that should help you be still. Once you understand that this is our God, this is our God, guys, come on. We, we can be still when we see that. When, when, when we understand, we, we get to look back on these stories. We get to look back on God's victory. We get to look back on God's faithfulness. Don't, don't miss this, guys. The, the same God who delivered Moses from the Egyptians, the same God who delivered David from the Philistines, the same God who delivered Elisha from the Armenians, to the same God who delivered Hezekiah from the Assyrians, the same God who delivered Jesus from Satan, sin, and death is the same God who is with you right now. And that is why all the victory and all the glory and all the honor and all the praise belong to him and to him alone. Listen, that's the God we need to know. Man, when you get to know that God. Once you know that God, then and only then can you be still. Then and only then can you release, let go, throw in the towel, surrender, and put your arms at your side. You can put your arms at your side. You don't, you don't have to fight because God is powerful and you don't have to protect yourself because God is your protection. Listen, to the degree that you embrace God's, God's, his godness, to that same degree, you will experience his stillness. To the degree that you know God, 
to that same degree, you will be still. Listen, if, if you're sitting here this morning and you want to know who this God is, you, you're, you're hearing all this and, and you're feeling a lot of the things that I described. You're, you're feeling that fear and that, that worry and that anxiety. And, and maybe, I, 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 don't, I don't know where your refuge is. I don't know where your strength comes from. I don't, I don't know who your ever-present help is in times of trouble. I, I don't know those things. But what I can tell you is that God wants to be that for you. God wants to be the Lord of your life. Jesus wants to be the Lord and Savior of your life. He wants to be your refuge. He wants to be your strength. He wants to be your help. He wants to be your fortress. So if you're sitting here today and you're like, I, 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 need, there's, there's, I have to do something with this. I need to know who this God is. If I'm going to experience that stillness, I have to embrace his Godness. And, and if that's you, I, I want to invite you today to place your faith in Jesus. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says that he who confesses with his mouth and believes with his heart that Jesus Christ is Lord shall be saved. So if you're sitting here today and you want to start a relationship with this Jesus, all it takes is for you to pray right now. Just pray and say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I love you. I, I want a relationship with you. I, I don't want to live for myself anymore. I want to rely on your lordship. I want to rely on your salvation. I want to rely on your victory. I want you to be my refuge. I want you to be my strength. I want you to be the savior from my sin and the Lord of my life. If that's you, all you have to do, according to Romans 10, 9, is pray, confess with your mouth, and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. Listen, if you prayed that prayer or you want to pray that prayer, we would love for you to text us at High Point at the number 9700. Zero, zero. We would love to pray with you. And we would love, even though that prayer happens between you and God, you don't have to do this Christian life alone. We would love to come alongside you and do life with you. So for those who know God, my prayer is that in this season, we would grow in our knowledge of the real God, of the Psalm 46 God. Because to the degree that we know God, to that same degree, we will be still. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for today. And I pray for the people who have just prayed to receive you. I pray that if, if they feel uncomfortable responding to a text, sending a text, that maybe they will let a Christian in their life know so that they don't have to walk this walk alone. This life is difficult, but we know that you are victor. We know that you are God, that you are our refuge and our strength and our help. Thank you that in you, we can be more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. We love you, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.